are live from the empire of lies, an oasis of truth and free speech in the vast barren wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is the backstory. Until you have a stroke, you don't realize how difficult the word investigative can be. Investigative is a little tricky to get your mouth around. It is for me anyway. How you doing, Rod? I'm doing well, Lee. Can't complain. How about yourself? How you feeling today? I'm good. I'm doing okay. So we get a great show. Let's talk about it. Coming up this hour, Ted Rawl. And Ted Rawl, you know, he's sort of French. You know what I'm saying, Rod? He's a dual citizen of France and America. And so I have some French questions for him because there's some French stuff that's been in the news, including their parliamentary elections that Ted knows all about. Have you noticed that? Yeah, we also had uh, Macron telling other leaders that they, they need to stop trying to embarrass Putin, that they need to stop trying to humiliate Putin. And and you notice Macron was also in Kiev today, the leader of Germany, Italy, and the aforementioned France, Macron, they were in Kiev, Ukraine today. And in Kiev, Ukraine, Macron apparently has become a war crimes investigator. Have you heard that, Rod? <laughs> no, I didn't know that was a part of his uh, resume. Well, he was stating on the record, the leader of a country was saying he had seen evidence that Russian forces had committed war crimes. A lot of people, they have to investigate things, but Macron is like Colombo. He can just tell. And he said that publicly, not about Colombo, but he said that Russia's engaged in war crimes. I think that's very dangerous talk. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And at the same time, they're trying to, uh, you know, I don't know how successful it would be. I don't think it would be six foot at all, but they're trying to get uh, Ukraine into the EU. They're trying to fast track that. Yeah, and we'll talk about that and more with Ted Rawl this hour. Next hour, James Carey, podcaster and writer. And we're talking about Erdogan. And I noticed the articles are still calling it Turkey. Have you noticed that, Rod? Yeah, there's a there's actually there's another there's other articles talking about well I don't think the name change or people are saying the name change isn't gonna isn't sticking so that it looks like they're just gonna stick with Turkey. I was thinking about this. You know, who's changed names in the past is India and China. Like, you've heard of Peking Duck, right? Yeah, I have heard of that before. Right on a restaurant menu. P there's no Peking anymore, right? Peking is Beijing. Am I right? Exactly. But no, Peking Duck still exists. Is it weird or what? So they sort of changed the name. And Bombay, of course, if you remember the classic TV show Bewitched, remember her uncle, Dr. Bombay? Yeah, yeah, I remember that, Lee. So he's now Dr. Mumbai. 
but I don't think he is. I don't think they reback they went back and redubbed the show. But we'll be talking about James with James Carey about actual important issues, not 60 sitcoms. And we're taking your calls today, 202-521-1320. And Rod, I was wondering, do you know the name of the show? You were listening to the backstory. Now, Rod, I, I was thinking about, now, who would you say is the most politically powerful woman in the country? Unfortunately, it'd have to be uh, Madam Speaker Pelosi. You're saying Nancy Pelosi, right? Is the most powerful woman. I say you're wrong. I say it's RuPaul. Now, let me produce some, I, and I know that may be controversial, but when Nancy Pelosi, who you said was the most powerful person, when she goes on a show and suck up to the person, I would say that person who's the suck up E, I guess, is more powerful. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so let's play the clip. This is the most powerful woman in the country politically, RuPaul, and Madam Speaker hit it. Please give a warm drag race welcome to the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Welcome back. My honor to be here to say to all of you how proud we all are of you. Thank you for the joy and beauty you bring to the world. Your freedom of expression of yourselves in drag is what America is all about. I say that all the time to my friends in drag. (laughs) Now, Speaker Pelosi, with all the challenges facing our nation, what words of wisdom do you have for us? Well, the single most important thing I can say is to vote. With the midterm elections coming up, it's very important for people to make their voices and their vote heard. Well, thank you so much for the work you've done and the work you continue to do tirelessly for our freedom. Your tenacity is something that we all look up to. We throw the word master class around here all the time, but that sarcastic, shady clap you do was epic. It was completely unintentional. prayers in our hearts to keep you strong. Well, thank you for that. May God bless America. Can I get a, an amen? amen. <laughs> thank you, Madam Speaker. <laughs> well, Rod, do you have any comment on that clip before we go on? Because I'll say a few things about it, but I like your, I, I don't want to infect you with my thoughts. So go ahead, Rod. I think this just adds to the you know, embarrassment, and I don't, you know, whatever. RuPaul's been around, you know, for as long as I can remember, but why would Nancy Pelosi be on a show with these uh, drag queens, these men who, dra- who dress up as women, and say that that they represent America, the the freedom, the freedom of uh, of America, you know, not. <laughs> he could think of a million, uh, maybe ten or twenty other things that they, she she could have uh, said represents the freedom of America, but she picked uh, a drag show on TV to show up, and so I just think it just adds to the embarrassment of America, and it's just it's just them embarrassing us publicly. Well, Rod, 
you said you could think of a dozen things. I'll mention one thing. An actual woman stripping on stage, I think personally, is more beautiful and they, it's fun and energetic. And especially if she co-shows her cooch, I think it represents everything great about America. Now, do you think any politician, you've been, I, I, I hear a rumor, Rod, you've been to strip joints, correct? Yes, I have. Uh, first time you've was been, 17. 17. You've been, in fact, at strip joints at a Roger Stone event. Yeah, that's another fact, too. I've been, been at a, a book signing at a, at a, at a uh, gentleman's club where Roger Stone was at. Now, did you see any politicians at the book signing at the strip joint? Uh, I was looking around. I was hoping to see somebody, uh, you know, some type of prominence, but no, no, no politician showed up. So Nancy Pelosi is saying, and do and, and you see what I'm saying about what drag is? And I'll talk about that in a second. It's they're on stage and occasionally dancing, sort of doing striptease. The one at the for the kids in Dallas, at least, they were, shall we say, dancing provocatively. Is that fair? I think that's uh, understating it, Lee. Right. They were thrusting their hips vigorously, right? Yeah, and taking money from children at the same time. And, so yeah. And shaking their tail feather, right? By the way, and in some cases, a prominent tail feather. But they were shaking the tail feather at the kids. Now, if I, we pointed out, if those had been women, would have a kid's strip joint day, if those had been actual born women, do you think Nancy Pelosi would be up? If, if the idea that men dress as women and acting sexually and acting provocatively is beautiful. Why not actual women? Is that fair to say, Rod? No, that is, that's, that's very fairly. And I think it just adds to this uh, spiritual warfare that we're under. This just this just to anger the public here in America that that uh, like you like like you stated, who's the most powerful woman politically? And unfortunately, it's uh, Speaker Pelosi. And what does she do? She flaunts this drag show in, in people's faces and said, "This is what America represents." Or they, re or they uh, represent America. And allow me to say, I want to be clear, this is not homophobic. If any LGBT people out there, I'm speaking for all lesbians when I say, I want to see women on stage. Is that fair to say, Rod? Do you think it's a, it's a fair stereotype that lesbians like women? Oh, yeah, no, it's extremely fair. Right. You know, I, so, you know uh, I've been thinking about uh, identifying as a woman and, and calling myself a lesbian too, Lee. So I've, I've been thinking about it. So we'll see if we'll see how we how it goes. Well, I'll I'll call you I'll call you a dagger, Rod. So let me ask you another question about it. So the idea of of drag is if I said to you, Rod, I'm going to go on stage tonight, and I'm going to be doing uh, an impression of another gender, and I'll be dressing up as a sort of stereotypical, exaggerating the characteristics of a woman, and I'll be on stage singing and dancing at this drag show. Does that sound like a fair description of what drag is? 
yeah, it's performative. Yeah, it's performative. Like you know, I guess you call it performative art. Um, no, no, and and no one would want me banned from anything. They would, I would be applauded by Nancy Pelosi, right? If you not, represent you'd... America, yeah, you'd be. No, I wouldn't be applauding you, sorry, Lee, but yeah, you'd be representing America in, in Nancy Pelosi's eyes. Now, let me say, if I was going to go on stage tonight and I said, I'm going to be doing an impression of a black American. I'll be exaggerating their characteristics and on stage singing and damning, dancing and perhaps talking about Mammy. And I'm going to be dressed as a black person and exaggerating some of their characteristics. For instance, gigantic lips that'll be painted to right? What is that called? I'd call you Justin Trudeau, but no, that that, that right. would definitely be that would definitely be uh, very racist of you to to do that and try to you know make a performance out of it. And and if I had done that thirty years ago, and footage got out of it, my my career, if I had one, would be at risk, right? But it's okay. You see what I'm getting at? Why is it okay to exaggerate the characteristics? of a gender and not a race. If I said I wasn't going to make be be in blackface, if I said I'm going to do it's Italian night and I'll be dressed like Super Mario, right? People would be offended by that, right? But if you do it as a woman, it's it's all that's great in America. Am I confused about? Do you do you see what I'm saying, Rod? I don't know if I'm making my point clearly, but but is no no, you, no 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 I, I I see what you're saying, Lee, and like you said, it it just it adds to the confusion because anybody with a sensible mind would just be like, you know, just like a deer in the headlights. Like, what is going on in America? You know, what, what why are we allowing? Or why is it okay for uh, New York to put two hundred thousand dollars into uh, gender studies for children? You know what I mean? For, to, for this, in public school. So it's just, it just adds to the, the confusion in America. And it seems to me to be profoundly anti-woman. The, the, even the transgender athletics issue is about fairness for women, right? Fairness for women. Not com having men compete against women where fi their physical strength is going to make them clearly victorious, and that's happened. And again, if some people want to say it's homophobic, lesbians like women. But do you think if you went on a date with a lesbian and she stripped you down naked, she got you back to her place, and she stripped you, stripped you down and found you were packing some heat, you know what I'm saying, around? Do you think she would be offended? Wait, say that again. If 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 I went well, on a date with a lesbian, yeah, well, I mean, you, wouldn't, if, if, wouldn't if, she if already have to know if, that you know if, my man? If you got if you got a date with a lesbian and she thought you were a woman, right? She thought you were writing in or whoever, and she okay. took you out on a date and brought you back to her place. And when she stripped you down, she found you were actually a guy who was dressed as a woman. How would she feel? She feel violated, you know. She feel violated that I would uh, present myself as a woman and, uh, you know, violate her trust. And we've had Tom Nichols say that 
he's had people say, and 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 I appreciate, you know, I, in some senses, I don't like to use Tom as an example because Tom's gay, and he's open about it, but. You know, it's, he's not virtue signally about it. Do you know what I'm saying? He's like a regular person. And he's a man, yeah. Mean, he's a, he's a, he... And all I mean by regular person is I'm not virtue signally about the fact that I like chicks. In the same way, Tom, whatever. Tom likes what he likes, and that's fine. But remember his story he told about how he didn't want to date someone who was a transgender person, and he was told he offended them because he didn't want to date them. Remember that story? Yeah, and he also he, he also talked about going on a date with a the, with a man who he thought was a man, but was a woman pretending to be a man. Right, and and what I'm saying is, if it's there's no homophobic issue there, it's a faking issue. Does that make sense? It's be, be be as you advertise. Don't do a bait and switch. Does that make sense? That's what's offensive to people. What say you, Rod? No, I agree, Lee. I definitely agree. And it's kind of like, uh, let me compare it to uh, the Biden administration and Joe Biden saying that he never said that he was going to ban fossil fuels. And, you know, how many clips can you, can we play of him saying we're going to get rid of fossil fuels? And you know, and look where we are with our gas situation now. So, like you said, be who you are. You just stick. What if you said you're going to ban fossil fuels, Joe Biden? Why don't you just stick with that and not try to switch it at the last minute? So I just didn't even know what to make of that RuPaul thing. Nancy Pelosi on a, a, the Drag Race show, which I I've never seen. I'll be honest. It's of no. Also, I I commented before about the voice. Did you hear there was one person who's commenting? We like to talk about masterclass, but th that person, that sounded in no way like a woman. I wasn't fooled. Were you? Were you fooled, Rod? No, not at all. And just pointing that out. Now, here's another interesting statistic. I heard recently. Do you know what demographic group? This is a, a, a ethnic demographic group. Just so you know, Joe Biden is least popular among what demographic group ethnically you know white people irish italian ukrainian black people hispanic whatever what ethnic group is joe biden least popular among see if you can guess it's either hispanic or asian americans well you're it's hispanic you're right 24 percent approval rating and Democrats, you'd think for all this, the calling white people racist for being in favor of immigration laws, right? You'd think they'd have that demographic locked up. But what, interestingly, what liberal Democrats believe about Hispanic people and black people and white people is the most stereotyped thing, right? They believe if they just say, well, we're post-immigration, that, that Hispanic people will throw flowers at their feet. And it doesn't work out that way, does it?
No, not at all, Lee. Not even for people who have uh, got in here illegally. I mean, uh, you know, I speak to these people, you know, we see them at restaurants and whatnot, and they tell you that they fear the same people that uh, America and the Biden administration are letting in because they, they know uh, that these are gang members, these are thugs, these are people that are the... the the scourge of their of their society from wherever they come from, and they you know they don't want them here either. So even though they're illegal, illegally here, but they're like we don't want them here. So, but you know the liberals here in America, they have this idealistic view of immigration and Hispanic people, and it, to me it's kind of racist to just think all Hispanic people think alike. Well, it's 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 not idealistic. It's stereotypical. I think. I think it's stereotypical. In the same sense that the KKK doesn't have an idealistic view of black people, they they have a they treat them as a group that individual people don't have individual thoughts, and that's what it's ending up for for Democrats is electoral disaster. That's one of the reasons that they're going to lose in November. Now. Did you see Ann Coulter made comments about Dinesh D'Souza's film, 2000 Mules, which I have not seen, but did you see her comments last night? No, I haven't, Lee. I have been, uh, I don't know if she's still on Twitter. I, haven't, I rarely see anything from Ann anymore. Well, it made news because Ann Coulter was critical. She said Dinesh D'Souza's film what, did not show what it claimed to show, and she referred to Dinesh D'Souza as a, as a grifter. So I'll just point that out. I haven't seen the film, but Anne was very critical of it. And I'll put it like this. I've talked about before, one of the strengths of Republicans is there can be vigorous disagreement among Republicans, whereas Democrats have to stay in lockstep. Now, do you see any merit at all in Anne's statement? Um, if if her statement is saying that the Nesh, what the Nesh's film doesn't show that that altered the entire, you know, most of the election for uh, Biden and, and taking it from Trump, then yeah, in a sense, she is right. But the Nesh never said that this movie was going to be everything, you know, like this was going to encapsulate everything. He's, he's, he said it in interviews. He's the movies for people to investigate for hopefully these states, uh, uh, for these states and these uh, attorney generals or other or other officials to investigate and look into, so you know it's it's fifty fifty. If you want to go with Anne, she's she's right, but at the same time, Dinesh never said this movie was going to be the the be it all of uh, of why the election was stolen. Yes, yeah, yeah, and I, I I haven't seen it, so I can't comment too much. But I'd like to point out these riffs opening up. I hope Anne and Dinesh debate it. I hope they talk about the merits of the film openly and as civilly as they can. And, you know, what what Ann said was pretty harsh. But I hope they debate it because that's what I think they should do because that makes it easier for people like us to determine. Let's hear both sides. And I think that's the problem. Yeah, go ahead, Rod. I was going to ask you if you saw the debate between uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Lindsey Graham last night. No, I missed it. No, I, I saw a clip of it, you know, and it was Bernie pretty much uh, admonishing uh, 
uh, Lindsey Graham and the Republicans. But, you know, I just was like, uh, you know, what was the point of this debate and what was the what was the goal of it? Now, do you think Lindsey Graham should be on Drag Race? Be careful what you say. Watch out, Rod. Uh, I think he watches the show. I'll say that. Okay. Good answer. Good answer. Number one answer. So the other thing going on today was they were back to January 6th hearings. Did you see any of, or or as the the girls call them, the soaps? So the soap opera was back on, and the, today was let's feel bad for Mike Pence. A lot of stuff about Mike Pence in the hearings today, Rod. Right? Yeah, they were showing pic- they were showing these pictures where they were trying to make it like a horror movie. Like, oh my God, look, they were gonna come attack Mike Pence and. He looked pretty calm in the pictures. It didn't look like he was scared or sweating bullets or anything like that. So it was it was kind of dumb for me to them for them to release these pictures like oh unreleased pictures of Mike Pence uh, before before he, you know they tried to attack him. And Mike Pence doesn't want to have anything to do with it. You notice Mike Pence is out there, he's not, and he's getting ready for 2024, right? Do you think Mike Pence has any chance of anywhere coming close to the nomination, Rod? Nah, not at all. Yeah, I agree. Now, Ted Rawl is on the line, and let's go to a short break, and then we'll talk to Ted about a couple of things that have been going on in France and America here on The Backstory. from the Empire of Lies in the capital of the Empire of Lies where 105.5 FM AM 1390 in the AM dial joining us now great friend of the show author cartoonist writer bon vivant Ted Rawl hey Ted how are you doing I'm okay Lee how are you doing good so I'll have a fancy dancy art question for you later don't worry we'll get into it but because I, I like your opinion as, a, as an artist about something don't worry i'm not going to show you a drawing i did and ask your opinion i wouldn't subject myself to that humiliation but first i want to talk about france so you are a dual citizen of france and the united states correct that is correct and so that puts you in a unique position of understanding French politics. And I understand they recently had one round of the parliamentary elections, correct? That's correct. And these are important because Emmanuel Macron won the elections a few months ago for prime minister, but he won by, how would you characterize it? Is a comfortable margin, but a smaller margin than he's won by in the past. Is that fair? Oh yeah, uh, that, it was a, it was a big, he definitely underperformed expectations in comparison with the past. I mean, his previous victory was a landslide 
Uh, not only did he win by a, a massive margin, but on top of that, he also uh, had the most commanding control of parliament uh, that in memory, probably in the post-war era. Uh, so he, you know, he invented his own political party from scratch and then brought in a parliament that was completely loyal to him. So, uh, you know, it was, he had really, uh, he dominated the French executive and legislative branches. But I'm hearing that this parliamentary election is not going as well for Macron, that his party is really underperforming in the parliamentary elections. And as I understand it, it's again a two round election, but what's the status on the parliament and who's winning? Well, so it's hard to say at this point because of the multiple rounds thing. But uh, what happened in the, you know, in the in the first round of the presidential, uh, you know, in this uh, in the pres in the sorry in the second round of the presidential race was that uh, he his opposition was split pretty evenly between uh, his two main left of center challenger. Well, between the left the left challenger Jean Luc Mélenchon and Marine Le Pen on the far right. So. Uh, you know, so it was kind of like uh, three horses coming in by a nose, right? Uh, and so Mélenchon made the argument uh, to the le to the French left that voted reluctantly for Macron uh, because they were just simply trying to defeat uh, Le Pen. Like, look, you didn't vote for me, but you can vote. You should this time. You can balance. Uh, you know, Macron. We've defeated the far right. Now you can put in some left-wing, you know, we would call them progressive. They would, the French would call them socialist deputies uh, to sort of even things out because Macron really is not a uh, liberal, really, uh, by French standards. I mean, he would be here, but uh, in France, he's considered sort of center-right now. Uh, he was kind of like one of those guys who, you know, kind of like a celebrity politician, you know, that, sort of like Colin Powell, who knows really what his politics would have been as president. And so, but then once he came in, uh, he definitely became known as the um, president of the rich and the, the moneyed classes. And so there's definitely, uh, you know, some anger, um, you know, on the left and and on the populist right, you know, sort of the, the, um, the yellow vest movement people, a lot of them are conservatives, but they're sort of Trumpy type conservatives. Now, what's at stake here? If Macron, I, what I've heard is if he doesn't get a victory broadly, if his party's not victorious in the parliamentary elections, that he's effectively a lame duck in French politics. Is, is that an overstatement? Uh, it's a, it might be a slight overstatement, but it would be kind of analogous to what's likely to happen early you know, after the midterms here in the United States, uh, you know, you're likely to have uh, Republicans controlling the House and the Senate by a comfortable majority. Uh, you're going to have Joe Biden, obviously a Democrat, and probably not much, you're not going to get much done because, uh, you know, the president has veto power and uh, you can't get anything through Congress with Republican control. So uh, I think that it'll be kind of analogous to that. Uh, unless it's not going to be even as functional as something that they, in French politics, they called co cohabitation. When you have the president and the prime minister of different parties, uh, that happened under Francois Mitterrand, 
for a while. Um, it's going to be more like just, I guess you could say, in the same way that Biden will be a lame duck uh, starting in November. I think that will be true. Um, that will be true for Macron, it, unless he carries, you know, a, a comfortable majority. Well, or a just a majority. And do you have any predictions on what's going to happen? I don't. I mean, French politics are so volatile at this point um, that it is, and, you know, I don't live there, but it's also this, the, the party system, as I grew up with, has been completely destroyed. Um, it's kind of like a look, in, you know, here in America, we often wonder, you know, we see the party power weakening. Uh, you know, we see sort of inconsistencies in ideologies and things, you know, like, for example, the Democrats are now a far more militaristic party than the Republicans. That's weird. Um, you know, so but in the, the French thing is much more disastrous. I mean, this, to think that the Socialist Party could have effectively been wiped out, even though it was France's majority party for decades, uh, is just inconceivable. And yet that has happened. So I think all bets are off. Nobody knows anything. We'll just have to see. Uh, good, good prediction. That was a safe one. Now, we had the spectacle today. Uh, Macron took a train to Kiev, Ukraine, with the leader of Italy and Germany. Now, this comes at an interesting time, because even a lot of people in the UK and even the US, even Joe Biden, seemingly threw Zelensky under the bus recently. And so while a lot of people are showing increased skepticism about Ukraine's ability to win, it doesn't seem like anybody believes in it anymore. Major European leaders show up in Kiev and seem to vigorously be supporting Ukraine with their words, putting their reputations online. What do you make of that? What's going on behind the scenes? You know, um, I get the, 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 the guess here. Obviously, all we can do is speculate. But without being a fly on the, on the wall of the room where it happened, uh, my speculation is that these uh, meetings were set up at a high level uh, a month ago, back when uh, there was more triumphalism, where uh, there was more rhetoric in the press about Ukraine was definitely going to win and uh, you know, Putin was in trouble and Russia was getting clobbered. Um, you know, and so now that the situation obviously has been revealed to be you know, the opposite of that, uh, and it's pretty clear that Ukraine is is not winning, um, they, I think they they would it would have been a tough look for them to cancel, and so I think you know they're going to be able they're going to be able to go in there and say, well, you know, six months from now or three months from now or twelve months from now or whenever there are. Uh, ceasefire and hopefully peace talks and negotiations that lead to some kind of settlement that obviously is going to leave Russia in charge of the Donbass and Crimea. Uh, they're going to have they're going to be able to say, you know, to their Western audience, well, you know, we we did support them, we did send money, we even went to visit. They can't cancel, otherwise it looks like they're cutting and running. I really think this was in the works uh, for a while. It obviously takes a while to set up all the all the security arrangements for a visit like that, particularly during a war. So I think, but I think if the meeting had been conceived of, say, a week ago, the meeting would not have taken place. Are you hearing anything 
on how the war is being received in France. Is France going to be, we, we've talked a bit about on the show about how Germany is going to be affected negatively by the economy. The, the, the way things are shaping up, it's going to take a big hit. Germany's already taking a big hit. Is France taking a hit economically? Yeah, absolutely. Based on what's they're happening? All the, they're having all the same problems we are. I mean, they had gas, high gas prices to begin with, and uh, they've shot through the roof. They're much higher than ours. Uh, they are suffering supply chain problems. Um, you know, definitely uh, the, the sanctions against Russia have ended up hurting France and, you know, pretty much all of the well, the whole Western world, right? All the all Western economies really dramatically. Um, you know, I get the sense um, that, that many French people, the French are divided on Ukraine the same way uh, that their you know, people are divided here. Um, Russia and France have long historical, as you know, Lee, um, yes, you know, tie, cultural and political ties. And so there's an affection, um, you know, for Russia in France uh, that complicates things. Um, and I think uh, it's, and I think also the real mood that's been exemplified by the Yellow Vest movement is France first. You know, uh, Marine Le Pen coasted on that too. There's just a sense that, uh, you know, pouring money into foreign affairs like the Ukraine war um, you know, is is not a good uh, use. It's not the right priority that most that most French people really want to see right now. I said I was going to ask you a fancy smancy art question. So, as someone who writes about politics, but also does art about politics, I'm wondering what you think. And this is a broad question. Ask answer however you want. What you think? the respective merits and downsides to using politics and straight intellectual politics to to talk about politics as opposed to art. Does that make any sense? In other words, if you talk about a political issue, you can approach it intellectually from a purely political perspective, or you can use various art, whether it's storytelling or visual arts, do you pick one? Do you? Do you what do you think? Because obviously you do both, Dad. And I'm not going to ask you how you pick on an individual issue, but what do you think are the respective upsides and downsides to arguing intellectually and arguing? And I'm using the term arguing loosely. I'm making your point through art. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, it makes sense, and it's a great question. No one, no one's ever asked me that. I love that question, and you know, I think my my answer is that um, okay. So pros, the pros of of being uh, of using the of using art as opposed to sort of a direct, say, polemic or screed or interview like this, is that it's sort of um, it's a way to access people who might not like listen to the radio. Or, uh, or, or even read newspapers. I mean, there are people who will read graphic novels or, uh, or, or read a poem or uh, listen to a song and that, who would not ever be engaged politically any other way. So you're reaching a new audience. Um, it also allows creators who might feel like, might be afraid of being burned politically. Like if, let's say, just to use a, you know, let's just say a, um, you know, Lady Gaga 
posts something on her Twitter feed that's uh, political and is offensive to like 40% of her, of her fans, she could lose millions of dollars. Um, you know, whereas if she does a song that conveys the same message because it uses metaphor and simile, um, she's going to be able to, the message will go down with a dollop of sugar, right? It's like a, it's, it, it's more, even people who disagree with her will be like, well, it's, it's still a, a song by my favorite singer. So I think there's a, there's, it's sort of safer in a way um, if for creative, uh, creative type people to express themselves, their politics through their art than it is to do it in a more straightforward way. But then there are cons because the message can be uh, you know, misunderstood. It can be misinterpreted. Uh, it can be lost entirely. Um, so, you know, obviously that's kind of catastrophic. And, you know, and, and you could argue that it's a little cowardly uh, because it does provide a certain safety, a certain cover. Yeah, no, no, good point. And I think a, a song like Imagine by John Lennon is a good example of that. The message of Imagine, if you break it down, is is idealistic Marxism. It's against private property and against religion. That's in the text. I'm not making up the interpretation. That's clearly what it says. But a lot of people who'd be offended by that message if it were presented as Marxism, like the song Imagine. Does that make sense, Ted? Totally. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with that. I mean, and you know, there's lots of songs like that that you you know that are you know that you just sort of people don't even really get what they mean. And it's kind of just makes things worse. I mean, I always think of like Beatles Tax Man as an example, right? Like here's these really rich guys who make millions and millions of dollars just singing while pe other people are working for a living and they're complaining about their tax bill. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it was their life experience at the time and they definitely, and the, you know, the British tax system was kind of insane uh, in terms of taxation. So they can comment on it, but <clears throat> I guess it's that thing where they're exposing themselves and it's, it's just, um, you know, I think politics in art is problematic, but I also think it's profoundly necessary. And uh, I kind of think that, like, when there's really big issues in the world, like existential issues like climate change, you know, if you're not engaged, if you're, as the French would say, an, an artist, an engaged artist, an artiste engagé, then you're kind of betraying your, your duty to try to change the world and, and make it a better place. Now, now Ted, you, you, let's talk about American politics. You're on the left. We've talked about that before. And I'll, I'll take an example of AOC and the members of the squad. Many people who are Republicans, and I think many Democrats too, would view the squad as the left wing of the Democratic Party. Right? How do you view the squad, Ted? What's your view of the well, squad? Well, the squad is the left wing of the Democratic Party. No question about it. Um, of course, they're not very far left, really. But, uh, you know, they're Bernie Sanders Democrats, basically. They call themselves Democratic Socialists, but there's 
they're not really you know, a member of the Democratic Socialist uh, Party anymore, and uh, to my knowledge. And they're, they're really just you know, Hubert Humphrey or Ted Kennedy Democrats at this stage. Has anyone from the squad ever said they want the workers to control the means of production? I, I mean, to me, that's pretty central to socialism or Marxism, right? The workers control the means of production. I don't, I've never heard them talk about that. Ever. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, no, they never, they're not, these are not true socialists. No, they have never talked about that. They might say you 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 should get higher wages or something like that, but getting higher wages is not the same as owning a factory, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, it's it's hard, hardly the same. Not even close. Not change the basic configuration of things. And what do you think? Do you because increasingly, a lot of people. I'm seeing a lot of splits on the what I'll call uh, American left among progressives. And you see people like Jimmy Dore, Mike, Max Blumenthal, or Glenn Greenwald often more or less thrown out of the left because they're critical of Democrats. And they say they don't want to vote Democratic. They don't want to support the Democratic Party reflexively. And I'm seeing a lot of splits where there's a move to throw people like Glenn Greenwald or Max Blumenthal or Matt Taibbi out. What are you seeing over uh, with yeah, the splits yeah. on the left? Well, I see that a lot. And, you know, look, there's been arguments from, uh, you know, people who are veterans of of various left-wing configurations like the Revolutionary Communist Party who say, look, there's always splits on the left. That's kind of, and that's good because it shows that the left is always developing and always thinking things through. I don't think, and I, I don't know that there's necessarily a problem that splits are necessarily a bad thing. But what's happening is that we're through, that when they try to cancel people like Glenn Greenwald, with whom I have substantial disagreements, um, or Matt Taibbi, um, they're, they're trying to get rid of some of the, best voices in the, on the left, some of the smartest, uh, most articulate, uh, most passionate people, and replace them with idiots, really. So that's the problem I have. I mean, I don't, you know, we can't, stand, we can't afford to lose people with big brains like Greenwald. Uh, you know, the fact that he's like got a libertarian impulse, um, you know, the fact that he criticizes the left and you know, he criticizes Democrats. I mean, Criticizing Democrats does not make you a conservative. Um, you know, it can, but it doesn't make you one inherently. And and certainly, I mean, Greenwald owes no explanations to anyone. I mean, his his progressive bona fides are clear to anyone with a pulse. So, uh, you know, I hate to see this. I really do. It, it makes me sick. And do you think that there's, because a, lo a lot of people in the establishment left their impulse is not to argue for their points. Their impulse is to cancel the other person. In other words, rather than answering Glenn Greenwald, they want to get him fired or ignored. Does that make sense? And I yeah, think that to one of the, right. And one of the results of that, I think, is that when you don't use a muscle, it atrophies. 
And so they're bad at arguing. Do you see my point? Yeah, totally. They don't want to use their they don't want to use their brains to win arguments. Uh, they just want to they just want to yell at someone and, and shout them down. It reminds me of like the uh, you know the transgender activists who've been after J.K. Rowling, um, you know, who really didn't say anything really offensive at all. Um, but you know they they're yelling at her, calling her names and and stupid acronyms, you know, turf. Um, and it's it's just like, look, uh, if you want to win an argument, you're going to have to actually make an, a counter argument of your own. You don't get to just, you know, pretend like you're at a Chinese Cultural Revolution struggle session and shout people down and think that that's winning. You can you you can make them shut up, but you haven't won. And do you think that's part of what is looking like a looming electoral disaster for the Dem Democrats? I think we could have be headed to something where the Democrats are not going to be able to pull their way out of it. I talked about it earlier. Biden is at 24% with Hispanics, the lowest among any demographic approval rating for Biden. And I think they had Hispanic voters locked up. But they're, aside from not trying to win arguments on intellectual rigor, Right. Aside from not trying to win it on argument strength, they're also not trying to win it on charm. I mean, look, I think it's not doing them. It's not helping them. It's not making them likable and it's not making them anyone appeal to them. But I think the reason that they're going to take a drubbing uh, this fall is really, you know, it, there's, it's multiple. But the number one reason is simply that we live in a two party system and that uh, whenever one party's in charge, and things aren't going well, Americans flail to the other party and throw the party that's in power in charge out of office and vote against them because it's the only way they can really express themselves because there's no real choices on the ballot. And then they'll do the same thing to the Republicans after things don't go well under them for a while, which is inevitably will happen at some point. And it'll just, it's a, it's a never ending cycle in a two party system. I think you need, need to have, um, you know, a, a, a lot of viable choices on the ballot if you don't want to see that. You want to see, um, you know, people really kind of vote for a party that more or less reflects the way they, they want to see things done or try to see things done. I mean, Democrats have a lot of other problems, too. They're not communicating. Uh, they're not, you know, Biden's not even saying, look, uh, I can't cure inflation, but here's what I'm trying to do or you know, we think it'll take a year and a half or, you know, I mean, like I'm, I'm, I'm consulting with all these brilliant economists. Um, you know, there's no sense that anyone's in charge or anyone's trying. You know, it's like if if someone tells you, well, I'm working on it and here's what I'm doing, you know, that can give you some some faith. But if they're not even tell, claiming that if they're just waiting for a big announcement to, that they're, you know, that, that never comes. Well, of course, people just assume they're not doing anything. No, I agree with that. I was going to say the Democrats are not, are not admitting to the problems. They're ignoring them. And so that's all set up for this question. Very practically, how do you think the January 6 hearings are going for the Democrats? Well, I think it's disappointing for them because it's not, you know, I think they want to put Donald Trump on the ballot and they're going to run against him. Look, um, they almost lost against him last time. 
and, and they lost against him before, and they could lose against him again. So I don't really know why they would want to do that. But Americans don't, they don't vote that way. Um, you know, they, they're, January 6th is in the rearview mirror. And uh, American voters, uh, even if they thought that what happened was outrageous, are just not going to focus on Donald Trump or the Republicans that way. I mean, they're voting for local races. They're voting for, you know, all politics is local. They're voting for their local House representative, their, their state U.S. senator. Um, and, of course, U.S. assemblymen and, uh, you know, state assemblymen and, and senators and so on. They're not voting for, um, you know, they're not, they're, this is not a referendum on January 6th. So you know, I think they're making a lot of mistakes. I think um, putting Liz Cheney in charge of it means that progressives and, you know, real liberals can't really get behind this whole state of affairs. I mean, you know, there's a kind of madness when someone like Robert Reich, of all people, you know, posits that Liz Cheney should become like the Democratic candidate for, for, for president. I mean, it's, it's kind of like these people have kind of lost their minds. They used to have Trump derangement syndrome. Now they have January 6th derangement syndrome. And uh, it's not, I don't think it's going to, it's not doing them any good. I don't think they've embarrassed themselves, but it's, I don't think it's going to move the needle at all. And I've said that I think in a weird way, it could totally backfire on them. If they make Trump so he can't run, I think Trump not running benefits the Republicans. I think there's more chance they'll get a Republican president elected if it's not Trump. In the last 30 seconds or so, what do you think about that, Ted? Um, yeah, I, I think that they are kind of making Trump more important than he would be otherwise, right? Otherwise, he'd be just stuck on, like, uh, truth social, you know, a tweeting or you know, fake tweeting into the wind. Um, but instead, uh, they're making him insanely important. That's never a good idea in framing. You know, all, all publicity is good publicity. All politics is good politics. He's in the conversation, front and center, just the way he likes to be. And Ted, we're out of time. I was interested in talking to you. Great guest, Ted Rall. You can find his stuff at RALL.com. His art over there. And you might be able to commission him to do a caricature of you. Check it out on RALL.com. Let's take a short break and come back to the backstory. And we're back live from the Empire of Lies the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. Once again, I want to thank Ted Rowe. He's a font of information, and I always do enjoy talking to Ted. Great conversations, and this is a home of good conversations and information mainstream media never talks about, and occasional stupid jokes. Coming up this hour, James Carey, author and podcaster, will be talking about, you think if you want to get more confusing about international relations, just bring up Erdogan. We can't even figure out what the hell's name, name of his country. You know what I'm saying, Rod? Is it Turkey? Is it tortilla? 
Is it guacamole? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> Turkia, Turkia. That's what it's supposed. That's what he wants people to call it. But it, he might be scrapping that. So. Yes, I would go with guacamole if I were him, because at least it's a funny word. You know what I'm saying? But we're also taking your calls, 202-521-1320. And Rod, do the presentation of the name of the show. Take it away. You're listening to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. Well done, sir. A fair amount of gravitas, and I like the plug. I never mind saying something nice about the show. So I, I pointed out that YouTube deleted my channel, Populous TV, and I didn't really care because I was expecting it to be, as soon as I got my second strike against me about a month ago, I knew it was a matter of time. And we we are on Rumble, and I've been, who who made the Rumble thing happen, Rod? I'm uh, not 100% sure. But our show's on Rumble, and you, you've been retweeting it, that your show's on Rumble, right? Yep, that's true. Uh, I've been posting a link for people to watch live or afterwards, you know, uh, and you've retweeted sometimes as well. So, yeah, we, we do have a library for people to watch uh, the show. Um, I don't know if all the episodes stay on there. I think there's uh, – I think it, it, I might be wrong, but the last time I saw it, it just stays at 18, so it only the last 18 episodes stay up there. So. Well, the best place to get the episodes is on the Sputnik website. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, agreed. You can definitely search uh, for certain terms or people that you want to see uh, shows and epi- uh, that have been on ep- different episodes, and that will be uh, your best shot right there. In fact, I was – I was trying to get in touch with one of the engineers because I've got to get an archive of all the episodes and I've been doing this what six so, so years. And so there's thousands of hours of the old fall lines that when I used to go host and a lot of great interviews, you know what I'm talking about, Rod, we have great interviews we've done over the years with people like Alex Jones. And I, I'll say this because I'm excited. We're a few short days next Tuesday with great David Icke. Are you looking forward to that, Rod? Oh, yeah, for sure. He's a, he's a legend, Lee. And um, I think it'll be great. I think, I think it'll uh, also, you know, you've also put it out there that you want to talk about. You want him to put it out there. What, what did he mean by lizard people? And uh, to clarify for everybody who tries to use that to admonish him. Yeah, because I really do think one of the ways I judge somebody is by the attacks that they get. I see a lot of stuff where they claim David Icke said something, but actually what he said was something different. Does that make sense? For instance, they say he said in an interview, he's the son of God, and they try to make him do a nut. Like he's saying he's Jesus Christ. In fact, he didn't say that. I listened to the interview and they cut it in a way that hides what he said. He said, we're all children of God. Do you see a difference there, Rod, between saying we're all children of God and I'm the son of God? Yeah, that's a big, that's a big difference right there. And I understand people saying that to try to you know, make him seem crazy. 
And then what people hear, they hear the lie repeated and they don't know what the person actually said. So I'm keen to ask him about that in a way that lets him know I'm on his side because I've looked up a lot of stuff and, and you, you can find it. The stuff about him saying he's the, the son of God gets used in article after article to attempt to smear him. But listen to the actual interview. He doesn't say that. And that's a very dishonest attack. And uh, so I look forward to talking to David Icke, who I have immense amounts of respect for as a student and teacher of hidden history, of alternate history, and the Council on Foreign Relations and all the roundtable groups, the Dread Lotto Commission. He knows that stuff very well. And think about this, and then we'll get to Owl Killer. In fact, I'll, I'll ask Owl Killer to, to answer. We have first, okay, first Mil, we'll take Millie. That's that's good. We'd like when Millie calls from Texas. But uh, think about this, Rod. Have you ever seen one single mainstream story about the roundtable groups, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, any of that stuff? Have you seen one, like 60 Minutes, 2020, any mainstream news story on those subjects? Um, I do remember George Bush being asked about Skull and Bones by, um, I think the Jim, guy. Jim, I can't, Jim Russell. Yeah, 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 and then, you know, uh, George Bush gets real, se- gets real serious and says it's a secret. But that's, was, that's the only thing I can remember. He was asked about Skull and Bones, but you see what I'm saying? The mainstream media puts out hours, hundreds of hours of programming a week, and they never cover this. And I would say uh, they, 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 they don't mention so much that's obviously important in the world, obviously, seeds of power. They never take it on. And the very fact that David Icke has, taken a, has devoted his life and takes the hits for exposing that stuff means I'm looking forward to talking to David next Tuesday. And don't forget, next Monday is the day we're celebrating Juneteenth. So we're not going to be here. Speaking of Juneteenth, sort of a Texas holiday, let's go to the calls, 202-521-1320. Hi, Melly. How you doing? What's on your mind? Um, you know, I'm I'm really interested in the cult of personality versus religion that's going on right now. I think a lot of people are are, are really flocking to churches because they don't want this cult of personality. Um, even if it's a Democrat or a Republican Party difference, um, you know, you mentioned uh, Glenn Greenwald and Matt. Is it Tabibi? Tabibi. Okay. So yeah, you know, they they've, they've always had great coverage. Especially Matt had phenomenal coverage on the HSBC scandals under Loretta Lynch. If you've seen any of his reporting on that, it's Matt Davies very good reporter. Yeah, yeah, especially on the HSBC scandals. So I see right now with Pierre Omidar and the USAID that's given out in Pierre Ormodar and how he's covered a lot of the Ukrainian crisis since 2013. 
and how he's been gifted a lot of the USAID programs. So if you talk about food crisis, like let's say right now we're dealing with a Democrat versus Democrat versus Republican Party on food struggles. They're willing to give all this money out to foreign countries, but they also have a food crisis. So they really have to decipher what is a true war on the people that have elected them. And that's where we're, we're running into a butted head between Democrat and Republican Party um, the food crisis. Now, what was the point you were making though about religion? Because you made a point about re- religion at the beginning of the call. Can you go back uh, on that a little bit? What, what are you talking about there? I think that I realized that it's not about a, a political party or you know a, a particular identity. They needed to cling on to something that would help them survive as a family unit with a mother and a father and children. And you know Christ and God and and the different political organizations in the sense of religion uh, are different than political organizations. So uh, you know they cross over on a lot of platforms right now. But you know the one thing that families want right now is how to survive with parents and children and providing for their families, and they they would rather uh, flock. To that community than they do other organizations, whether it be globalists or um, you know you can name it. They they, they No, would- I'm I'm saying the same thing. And actually, and, and thanks for elucidating. But I was going to say something about that. I fear, in some senses, because traditional religion has been part of the problem historically. And although there, are, I'm I'm not anti-religious, when it comes to specifics, some things that churches have done, and obviously you can control people through a political cult of personality, but you can also control them through a religious cult of personality. And my broad fear is that religion often focuses on other things than what I would call true spirituality. And they do focus sometimes on making money, or they do focus on the pure power. A lot of people have been, for instance, sexually molested through people using religion as a way of gaining power over people. So I have a a slight fear. I I, I don't come down harsh on it because— given the choice between globalism and people that expressly reject, or or, let me put it a different way. I see people who enthusiastically embrace evil. Does that make sense, Melanie? Absolutely, when it comes to religion and Satan. Yes, but the answer to that is not necessarily to me to go the other way, which is, mindlessly embracing what someone else defines God as. Does that make sense? Yes, and I think that's the political divide is, you know, even if it's pro-life or immigration or, you know, you can name the issue, there's a religious background that makes people um, decipher what is the best decision for their family, even if it's voting. Yes. Thanks. Great call, Melanie. Nice talking to you again. 
Let's go 202-521-1320. Al Killer, let me pick on you. Did you hear what I was saying about religion and my fear somewhat about going whole hog into accepting an authoritarian religious outlook? Does that make any sense, Al Killer? Absolutely, and I'm glad that um, you're on this topic because it's what I wanted to get into yesterday. Um, I, I definitely see, uh, I think it's more, it's not the religion itself. It's that bad people seek, like I seek positions of authority. And a, I, I don't think like for you brought up how um, children have, you know, have been, uh, well, not just children, but people in general have been sexually abused. There's a Netflix special on the uh, FLDS, which is the Fundamental uh, Latter-day Saints in, um, yes. in Utah. So it, I was— They're I, in Utah and, and, and let me interrupt you, and Idaho. I dealt with some people who had, were connected with them when I was in Twin Falls, Idaho. And a lot of them, because look at a map, Idaho and Utah are kind of close. I, I, I knew one woman up there who's— Father had multiple wives, for instance. And I'm not saying that per se, but I'm just saying she was that fundamentalist uh, Mormon thing that you're talking about. So go ahead, Al Color. I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, so I, I don't, I what I think it is, it's bad. Like, I, I think it's like, for if you're talking about sexual abuse, for example, uh, they seek how do you get access to the people that you want to abuse? You become a priest. You become a Boy Scout leader. You become a child protective services is riddled with people that are um, on a percentage scale. I think it's one of the um, more, I, I think it's a, it's a career field with some of the most um, child predators is actually child protective services is because they go into positions of power where they're able to have access to their victims. Now, and just on just on a when you I, I think this whole global warming thing is a religion as well. And what I want you played John Kerry yesterday talking about how by twenty thirty five they want to have all electric vehicles. If you can name one Western leader that has children in, in, in Europe, l- let me know because I, I'm almost positive to a person there's not one of them that has children. And every time you hear anytime you hear carbon neutral or sustainable or uh, green, that's anti-human. And I, I think that is that I think w- this is a cult that has gone mainstream. They always wanted to be mainstream. And ever since uh, Thomas Malthus, um, the, the elite have been drawn to this because I think they don't necessarily, they, their minions do believe it. Like the college students and the teachers, they do, they actually do believe in this religion. But it's the reason why somebody like a prince, uh, uh, Prince Charles or a um, who is his father? Um, who, the one that just died. The, the who who is Prince Charles? Philip. 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 But where somebody like that can say that all oh, they want to come back like a virus and how there's too many people or John D. Rockefeller saying he knew that um, there were that overpopulation was a thing when he went to India and that he noticed that. I, I, I it's like a, a word for word quote um, where he said that he realized that um, they were. But what do you think? The, let, let me ask you the tougher question. I'll call it. I, I'm saying it's tougher. You might find it easy. What's the right position on the environment? Because won't you admit that a lot of screw up stuff has happened to the environment? 
And I would say not living with harmony with the environment is somewhat of a spiritual issue. I won't use the term religious, but a lot of screw-up stuff has happened to the environment. Do you agree? I, I would say yes, but but I, I'd also say that if you want to subscribe to that, then what changed the environment in the past? If you want to believe the world is 65 million years old and all this, you know, all, all the, if you want to go down, because I think it's just as much a religion as any other religion. If you want to go down that, if you want to go down that path, then what created all the other changes in the world? And that, and that doesn't mean I'm for, hey, just, you know, pollute the planet, drop every, you know, drop chemicals into water. Because I, I know places like West Virginia have, you know, issues where the water can be lit on fire. I, I, I understand, you know, there's air pollution. But let, let's be honest and say that I don't think if people really believe this stuff, you're not going to buy a house at sea level. You're not going to fly first class. I mean, you're not going to have a private jet. It's it's because you you're it's it's not so much that they believe it it's that it's the ability to control massive amounts of people and the i mean the club of rome bring up bring that well, up well, well let me ask you al killer do you know anyone who owns a private jet i don't okay and do you know anyone who has a gigantic acres wide pit of pig manure i don't so there there are places and this is where a lot of problems are. Where places like Hormel, for instance, they're doing huge factory farming. That causes pollution on a precedent that a five-acre farmer, does that make sense? Somebody's got some land and chickens. They can't pollute like that. And that's causing huge environmental displacement. And the movement has been towards factory farming. The reason Monsanto and other people have a lot of power is they enable corporate farming. Does that make sense? One hundred percent, and I we're in total we're in total agreement with that. I'm in total agreement with you with that. I I just don't I just don't think that humans have the impact. I I think that we I think for about a hundred years that we have been told that we're nothing, we're worthless. And you, you see it from, you, you just see it. If you go look at people, how they dress in the great depression and, and they look better than people dressing today. I, I think that we have been, we're a self-fulfilling prophecy of how the, just look at the degeneracy in the music and the, I, I, uh, and the, the movies and TV and how people behave. I think we have, they have dumbed us down and they have made us, like we've created this image of, you know, we're just this, we're just this cancer on the earth. And I, I think they've done this to us on purpose through propaganda so that they themselves feel good about what they're about to do to us. Because I, I, I I'm going to be honest with you. I don't, I, I don't care about the earth. If it's going to mean the extinction of people, if we're, if we're going to wipe out, like, cause I, some of the numbers that these people talk about that there should be 500 million people on the planet. I'm sorry. Let's but, go. So, so, so I think what you're falling into there, the danger of the trap is, is this like someone saying, for instance, I'm not saying you're saying this, it's an analogy. Okay. I'll call it an analogy again. Wait, I said Sharif, well, I'll get to you in one second. But imagine if someone says, I'm so sick of hearing about Black Lives Matter, right? And they do talk about Black Lives Matter and this. I've talked about problems. 
the moment that person goes, I'm so sick of it, to heck with the N-words, right? And they, they say it more adamantly than that. They've, they've fallen into the trap, which is the solution, the al alternative to Black Lives Matter is not being a white racist, is rejecting racism. See, alternative to me on the environmental thing is not, I don't even care about the earth. You are part of the earth, owl killer. You specifically come from the earth. You cannot separate yourself from the earth. If you hate the earth or you, and you shouldn't hate being human, you shouldn't hate anything that's part of nature and that is part of what you just automatically hate it. But do you see my point about about the trap people can fall into? And I think this is the point of the Elias is they they like it when somebody says, I'm sick of Black Lives Matter and spurts out some racist nonsense. The answer to racism on one side is not racism on the other. And I think it's the same point here. In, they want you to do not. That's why I brought up do you, do you own a private jet. The people who are pushing this message are the people who are actually causing the problems at large. Al Killer, what say you? I, I see. I agree with you on, and I agree with you. Not only do they want people to react that, I, I do think that that is what they want to do when they have groups of people go. I, Charlottesville was a perfect example of how they want people to behave one group versus the other group. And the, where you have a, uh, where you have an extreme of people like art, you know, let's, okay. If, if this is how people are behaving, let, you know, I'm going to have it, it's damn everybody that's in that group. I, I, I get that. I do totally understand that analogy, but what I, I don't, I, I'm sorry. I'm not. It, I, it's unacceptable to say that people are useless eaters, and like that. That's if that is the case. I'm willing to go down with the ship rather than turn my back on humanity. Like I, I think people should be. If people had that attitude, that this would go away. If, if people were say we're not going to subscribe to humans are trash and garbage because I mean these are some of the richest people on the planet and some of the most supposed to, supposed to be the most educated people and uh, highest intellects. Are saying that we're trash and we're bring that up with David Icke. I, I guarantee you he'll bring up Morris Morris Strong uh, in 1968 with the Club of Rome and how they said we're going to use the environment. That will be the new communism. That's how we will get the rest of the world to. But but I should point out David Icke is in many senses environmentalist, and I plan to talk to him about Alan Watts and his position on Alan Watts, the British Zen Buddhist philosopher. But it's going to be great talking to David Ike, and it was great talking to you, Al Keller. Always a pleasure when you call. Thanks so much for a great call. 202-521-1320. Tarif, what is on your mind? Well, thank you for taking my call. First, I'd like to say, we June and signed to have a few comments. First comment is this, that uh, it was reported that Ukraine won't be able to pay hundreds of thousands of people pensions and social um and also paying to the social programs. So, you know, that's a that's a, um that's gonna be building to a um, you know, massive riots in the coming months because they're not paying paying people pensions. But Russia, the Russian held territories, they are paying people pensions in those areas in Ukraine. 
My second comment is dealing with the uh, interest rate bump and how the, the stock market is taking a dive because of that. Um, from what I understand, by listening to different economics and people talking about it, the rate the, by the rates, um, interest rates rising to stop inflation, which is not enough. Now we might be going to a recession, but we have either high inflation or a recession. We'll pick one, you know. So interest rates, interest rate bearing loans, where people took out on their houses. Well, you know, they had, uh, one guy was talking about, hey, yeah, he knew some people that was taking out $400,000 loan on houses, thinking that at the end of the year, they'll, make, they'll flip the house for 500000 But because the stock market turned down and everything like that, those people still have those loans. And you still have, um, you have businesses that have to pay back those loans as well that, that took out loans and it's going to be uh, high from the payback the loans and adjustable rates. When people that um, have um, these homes that didn't learn from um, 2008, so you still got that going on where people can be going under and also losing their jobs or whatever because jobs are going to be, you know, closing because, you know, uh, the high interest rates and things of that nature. Um, yeah, that, that, yeah, that's about it for right now, um, Lee. That's all I got. Well, great call as usual, Sharif. And Sharif's pointing out the new first-time homebuyer market in the United States is about to shut down. It, it's already happened, probably, because of the recent recent rate hikes uh, by the Fed. The recent rate hikes mean the era of low-interest loans is effectively over for now. And you're about to see the number of new first-time homebuyers close up some people are still investing and some people are selling their house and they're trading one expensive house. I, I started to think my brother owns a house in Southern California. If he wanted to sell his house there and move to South Dakota, God forbid, he would buy a mansion. So, uh, and, and people are doing that, but the interest rates that Tariq brought it's a major issue, and it's going to affect the economy soon. Okay, let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking to James Carey, and I'll be playing that clip just heads up, Command Central, on the backstory. backstory and on the radio in the capital of the Empire of Lies, Washington, D.C., 105.5 FM and AM 1390. Joining us now, author and podcaster, James Carey. Hey, James, how you doing? Hey, good to hear from you again. Good. Great. Great to have you on the show. So I'm going to have you say the name of your podcast because I don't want to offend anyone. <laughs> My podcast is called The Left is Dead, and that it's from somebody on the left. No, why do you call it the left is dead? Um, I think any hope of an economic left-wing movement taking place right now is sort of hopeless. Uh, I don't think the identitarian movements of the liberal left are anything that gain any material conditions for any workers. So I think any effective left that could bring about any material change that would make universally make 
with lives more viable and healthy is kind of dead right now. And culturally, James, I'm curious. You said economically it's not going to bring about anything. Socially, culturally, do you think the left has already won? And I mean it's in a sense, what have that? You know, I was thinking about this. Nancy Pelosi talking on on the drag wing show, drag race, talking about, I was thinking about how oppressed is a drag community when they have a TV show. You, you, do you see what I'm getting at? In the sense that the the unions partially in this country became a victim of their own success. Once they achieve things like overtime pay and a minimum wage and basic workers' rights, then they couldn't get anything more. Socially, short of utopia, I don't see what's there to be achieved. Socially, James, let's say you. Yeah, I think economically we've been kind of hit. We've been hit by the same thing everybody else feels, NAFTA and everything like that, hit organized labor. Um, organized labor now is just struggling to conserve the few gains that it did make over the last you know, 50 years. And, and at a time like this where there's high interest rates and things like that, that's meant to discipline labor as much as it's meant to discipline the market. So they're going to be punished again. Socially, the sort of post-68 left, um, the, you know— College educated, a lot of who went through, you know, Cointelpro and MK Ultra and stuff like that. They have decided to replicate that system that they came out of. Now they run the universities. Now they run cultural institutions like movie studios, television studios, music, and a lot of entertainment. And yeah, culturally, the left has won, but I think this is the postmodern left. This is the left that can't offer you, they can't offer you something as simple as Medicare for all. But they can offer you, you know, like you said, Nancy Pelosi on the drag queen show or whatever. There's no economic benefit to any of this. Uh, you can talk about the patriarchy all you want, but as far as I've seen, there is no say, uh, patriarchy that benefits any working class male to some point where they're in charge of women or anything like that. I think everyone is just kind of doing a postmodern performance of what they wish would be, you know, what they wish we could go back to while the left kind of does this performance of being woke enough that, you know, we have this intersectional ruling class, but I don't think that does anything to help any of the people, even the people they say they represent, you know, trans people, drag queens or whatever. I don't think the left is, the liberal left is doing anything to actually help any of those people besides putting them on television more. And honestly, by putting them on television more and not explaining it and just telling people to like it, having no, you know, material explanation for this and just this is it. We own culture. You have to like it. And this will change it. It's Hegelian. You know, it's a very Hegelian way to go about things. It's not correct. And I don't think it benefits anybody, even the communities they claim, but it says it, you know, no great perspective, James. Now I'm going to play a clip and we start to get into a foreign policy discussion. And it's so this sort of relates to a couple of things we're talking about, but it specifically relates to a couple of Middle Eastern countries. We're going to talk about, let's play a clip. This is a press conference, I believe. Hit um, so We know that Saudi officials have been seizing rainbow-colored toys and clothing as part of an apparent crackdown on homosexuality in the country there. That's according to state-run media. I wonder what the White House uh, response is to that, given that President Trump set up his 
um, pride credentials in the, in the next event. So I have not seen that reporting, but what I can say globally, uh, we work around the, the globe to protect LGBTQI plus persons from violence and abuse, uh, criminalization, discrimination, and stigma, and, and empower local LGBTQI plus movements and persons. Uh, we do this through bilateral and multilateral channels, uh, raising official concerns with governor, governments, both principal and privately, uh, coordinating our efforts with like-minded countries, and offering emergency assistance to LGBTQI plus persons at risk. Through our foreign assistance program, programming, we support civil society in providing LGBTQI plus individuals and communities with tools and resources to prevent, mitigate, and recover from violence, discrimination, and stigma. We see human rights as being universal. I'm going to take one last one. Well, I'm going to take one last one. I'm going to take one last one. Now, James, in case you don't speak flack, allow me to translate. What she said there was blah, 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 blah. She said nothing. And I'll, I'll tell you what she didn't say. She didn't say, we oppose what Saudi Arabia is doing. We oppose it. Flat out. Did you notice that too? So she doesn't know they have anti-gay policies. They always have. Yes. Yeah. Including hanging. If you hang people who are gay, that's a pretty anti-gay policy. Yeah. But that way. she... And what position in general is this administration? The Biden administration is in a precarious position because they've done something, I think, unprecedented. They've made two countries, Saudi Arabia and Iran, two countries that basically hated each other, both hate the Biden administration. Am I right? Yeah, in a way. And I think... Um Iran was always going to, I mean, uh, Biden came back to the JCPOA without any changes in the Trump policy, right? He demanded the Trump sanctions stay on, and he was unwilling to negotiate with Iran in any legitimate fashion. And with the Saudis, I mean, the, obviously, there's a lot of people here who disapprove of the things the Saudis are, are doing all the time. I'm one of them. Um, but if you're not willing to actually punish the Saudis and put them out and say maybe stop supplying their war in Yemen or stop supplying – stop giving the money to the people who are hanging gay people, you know, then we could have a discussion. But I think that when it comes to things like gay rights and stuff like that, you're not going to see it targeted against Saudi Arabia or Turkey or uh, Middle Eastern allies or any allies, say, in Asia or anything like that. Where you'll see a target is maybe, I don't know, an African nation that has too much Chinese investment. Then we'll start talking about how they're anti-gay and need to be sanctioned. But when it comes to the Saudis or anything like that, the reason they're giving no answer – is because they don't actually want to do it because right now they're trying to appease the Saudis. And as they see that portion of the world kind of drift away from the United States completely, I don't think, you know, they're doing whatever they can. They're not going to punish the Saudis for any anti-gay stuff. They're not going to punish them for Khashoggi. They're not going to punish them for any type of interaction with Russia. All we have to do in this country, because we are so uh, how did the Saudi oil, we will just continue to beg them for forgiveness, I think. And I don't... That's not a good position to come at somebody at, is it? To come begging when you want something from them. Well, and this brings us to the point I was going to make about the Middle East. The, the, you're right. They are trying to appease the Saudis. And they're also trying to appease Iran. They they sort of want to get back in the, the arms treaty with Iran. But they didn't come to the table with a serious proposal. And also in the Middle East, the Erdogan. 
Erdogan, they also don't, they sort of want to appease him, but they mainly don't want to piss him off more. It seems to me. How do you think Erdogan fits in? Those are the big players in the Middle East. Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, and, and Turkey. What do you make of that, James? with the other two powers, right? Erdogan has, uh, Turkey has been caught violating sanctions with Iran. I don't doubt they're still doing it. Um, Iran is their neighbor, and they're going to do business with them. They want to do business with them. And the Saudis, despite, you know, the falling out over Khashoggi a couple of years ago, um, it looks like the Saudis and the Turks are doing more business. You know, they've been kind of at each other's throats since the Arab Spring uh, when Erdogan backed a lot of the Muslim Brotherhood movements across the region, which is obviously the only opposition that could probably take over from the Saudi royal family in Saudi Arabia based on, you know, who would end up voting. But I think as time has gone on and they realize the U.S. has less interest in basically appeasing them. I mean, they're going to try to appease Erdogan because he's a NATO member and they're going to try to appease the Saudis uh, because they need the oil, but they have nothing to offer them because the people at home are chastising both of these nations. And rightfully so, you know, they're both led by pretty vile people. And I'm not going to say the same about Iran because I understand Iran being a target of us imperialism, but Turkey itself, I don't think is going to listen to how the U S wants to run the middle East. And you see that now, with the talks of NATO expansion, when their main demand is, we don't want Western support for the PKK in northern Syria, and which is deemed a terrorist group by NATO. And the Turks have not been able to get potential new members of NATO to disavow the PKK. And I think that Turkey wants, and as bad as it is, Turkey wants to achieve whatever their goals are in northern Syria and in the region of northern Iraq. And I think that, you know, that also works in coordination with Iran because Iran doesn't want, say, Israel operating out of northern Iraq where the Americans are operating out of. Um, Syria, I think they'd probably make a better deal with Turkey and the Russians as a mediator than they would with the United States occupying the oil fields in the north. I think Erdogan sees that, and I think that Erdogan wants a chance for Turkey to be able to set its – and we've seen this throughout the last couple of years. Erdogan wants a chance for Turkey to be able to set its own foreign policy without being completely, you know, beholden to NATO interests or the EU or the U.S. And really, that's all Turkey has been before Erdogan. It was the second largest NATO army. It was always pro-NATO. Uh, it was always really, it was meant, it was, you know, a real gusto against Russia. And I think you're seeing that fading because Turkey's trying to find a way for itself to, you know, have some level of self-determination and move forward with their own future. Whether they're doing a good job of that or not is another story. I don't think they are. But you can see what they've wanted, and they don't want to be a NATO vassal anymore. Now, moving laterally to Pakistan, we have a situation in Pakistan where they've undergone a lot of upheaval lately that the U.S. wants to wash our hands of and say we had nothing to do with that. Do you buy the U.S. saying they had nothing to do with things in Pakistan uh, no, because who is it that runs the other parties in Pakistan that have kind of taken over at this point besides the old guard who worked with us and say the war on terror, the, the parties connected to uh, Pakistan's intelligence service, the ISI, the Pakistani military. And we know these groups have spent years, um, even during the war on terror, they were facilitating things with Al-Qaeda moving across the border. We know the ISI has heavily been involved with the Taliban. 
Um, you know, Pakistan has their own interests in Afghanistan that we ignored. And I mean, look, we did an illegal raid on them to catch bin Laden, right? They're not exactly pals. And I think uh, Khan coming back and pushing against some of these really uh, what, what you would call a deep state, really, because there was these forces that had been put in place by U.S. intelligence to work with U.S. intelligence and their shadier aspects were overlooked. Um, so I think that Khan pushed against this deep state sort of that exists in Pakistan that we've known about for all these years. I mean, there's always been these talks about the ISI since we invaded Afghanistan about how they're, I don't know if we should trust them because we shouldn't. Um, and I think, but the thing was, I think Khan pushed against that too much. And there was backlash, whether by the U S itself or by statement, you know, statements from the U S that at least convinced Pakistani lawmakers to move on Khan and to make sure the deep state, this military state intelligence uh, apparatus stays in place as it was. Now, Pakistan's also got a problem with IMF loans they can't pay back. But do you want to talk in general, how do IMF loans work in the world of geopolitics? Yeah, I mean, you know, they are. They're, they're austerity, right? They're rules. IMF loans come with rules. IMF loans come with pro-democracy rules. IMF loans come with, you have to, uh, we now dictate your state's budget. IMF loans come with economic cooperation that is geared towards benefiting Western powers. Um, they come with ridiculous interest rates, and they come with horrible punishments should you not follow the, you know, the stipulations listed in them, we, as we saw with Greece when they tried to rebel against uh, IMF loans and the European bailout fund during the crisis in, two, in the late 2000s. So I think that you know, you know what an IMF loan looks like. These are high interest, and often they end up bringing in American companies or Western companies that build monopolies in these countries because that's who the IMF loan stipulates you have to do business with. These are basically soft imperialism. They are soft imperialism. They are forces, corporate forces working within the IMF, working in conjunction with the IMF, like something like a Gates Foundation or, you know, private companies like Motorola that set up these telephone networks in Africa under IMF loans. These are ways for American capital to create monopolies in markets they were not previously in. And I think that is something that most people forget because once you have these American, you know, these American companies operating in your nation, you don't abide by every condition of this IMF loan. All of a sudden you don't have access to these things that suddenly were gifts to you, but now you're expected to pay for, and it's, you are going to pay a lot and it may be a coup. It may be money. It may be whatever, but you're going to pay, you know? And I think that's the thing is the IMF comes with stipulations and those stipulations are you behave as the West tells you, or you're going to be in trouble. Well, no, but, but am I correct in that? Pakistan seems like they can't, they just don't have the money. But I, I agree that they're going to pay one way or another. But what's the other way they're going to pay in Pakistan's case? Uh, in Pakistan, I think that, you know, they'll just continue to, to face these punishments. I think that what will happen is they'll be forced to choose between East and West. I'm not quite sure um, what specifically will go go on there. I'm not too huge of an expert on Pakistan, but I think that, in the case of the IMF, you know, they could go bankrupt, and I think that the government will um, be set upon by more U.S. influence or more U.S. pressure to go the way they want. I think that Pakistan may lose quite a bit of its uh, – it, well, they lose what everyone loses. They lose their sovereignty, and I think that Pakistan will be forced to honestly choose to be um, – they will have to choose between being a bulwark against China or not with an IMF loan, and I think that would actually lose the market to – lose them access to a huge trading partner who intends to include them on the Belt and Road project and would try and 
that's the big thing is what we're trying to do now is shut everyone out from this other economy building in the East. There's this alternate economic system between Russia and China and India is kind of neutral, but there's this alternate economic system being built in the East. And any IMF loans for like a country on the periphery now, uh, as far as the West goes, we're going to make sure that one condition is you cannot, you know, embed yourself further with China. That's the only reason Erdogan in Turkey has not embedded himself further with China is because we have these certain things like uh, a lot of the NATO benefits, even though Turkey has lost a lot of them, they would be pulled back. Pakistan, a lot of the benefits of security cooperation, uh, weapons funding, you know, they buy a lot of their weapons from NATO member Turkey. Uh, a lot of these things would go out the window because the biggest thing is to make sure that we isolate them from the Eastern market, I think, because uh, clearly China and Russia, with the way it's uh, rebounded, even with all these sanctions, you know, despite what everyone had predicted, I think that it's clear that, that there's another system being built on the other side of the world. And we're trying to exclude everybody we can from that by forcing them to stay out of it. And of course, the IMF homes played a part in Ukraine, as we saw the threat that Biden had against Ukraine was withholding an IMF loan. And he got the prosecutor thrown out on the basis of that. So turning to Ukraine, we're starting to see U.S. mercenaries captured in Ukraine. I saw a picture today of a couple of guys who were U.S. mercenaries. Recently, the Nets People's Republic found two British mercenaries and a Moroccan, I believe, guilty, and they sentenced them to death. What's going to happen when U.S. mercenaries are facing the death penalty? Has anyone thought about that, the effect that that will have on foreign policy? You know, I think the thing is, is that, that it doesn't affect foreign policy much. I'm, to me, I think the policy in Ukraine is— you know, again, we're sending you know, these mercenaries are people who volunteer to go over there, which is a foolish thing to do because the Ukrainians don't care about their lives. But I'll tell them right now that we don't care about the Ukrainians' lives here. That is that's the biggest thing. I don't think that the U.S. will necessarily get to a, there'll be words obviously exchanged with Russia, and Russia will be able to you know have some accountable some deniability that's pretty reasonable because they're not in charge of everything that happens in Donetsk, um, but. The U.S., I think the U.S. policy is, hey, we're willing to pile up Ukrainians to the ceiling in order to try and give Russia a black eye. And if, you know, you choose to go over there and do that and die doing that, that's on you for contributing to our propaganda war. But this is about, you know, attempting to bruise Russia, right? And that's why all the news here is, oh, we've stopped them, we've stalled them, we're winning. It's all a lie, clearly. But, you know, that that— is the matter of fact, I think maybe you will see these American guys held up if should when they are captured, let's put it that way. I think you'll see them held up as, oh, this is a tragedy and like this is why we need why we need to send more javelins or whatever. But I think that that's the case and I think honestly I think the uh, the real lesson here is that any Eastern nation that thinks the US and more powerful Western powers are going to get involved to protect you from anything is absolutely foolish. If this is strengthened NATO, but I, I think it should be weakening it, in my opinion, because it, Ukraine wasn't even a NATO member yet, but Turkey was a NATO member when they shot down that Russian jet over Syria, and what did we do? We did nothing. That was supposedly, you know, the first strike policy, and we just let it go. So I don't think that 
And look at Greece. I mean, Greece is fighting with Turkey right now. They're two NATO allies fighting over the Aegean, and nobody's really stepping in to do anything because nobody knows what to do. So I think these smaller powers in the east of Europe and in you know towards the Mediterranean, I think they've they've got to learn that U.S. doesn't care, and you can be used to teach a lesson to whoever else we want to teach a lesson to. You can be sacrificed, and the same goes for the mercenaries. If you want to go over there, great. You serve a great little, you know, you'll have a good spot on the nightly news as a nice propaganda piece, but know this. This is about sacrificing as many Ukrainians as possible in order to just prove something to Russia. And now that we're seeing Zelensky start to get thrown under the bus by Biden— and also recriminations between Zelensky and his top general. We're starting to see the blame game getting played out. Do you have any predictions on how this is going to end based on history? How have things worked out for Americans who we've told will help in the past? Well, I think there's two ways. One is we can either let Zelensky, and I think the U.K. is kind of getting in the way of this. I think we can let Zelensky negotiate, and I think he should. And whether he wants to or not is up to him. But I think the Ukraine should be forced to negotiate and accept that they're going to lose some territory here because nobody's going to start a nuclear war over it. I'm sorry. You guys are going to have to deal with it, but we're not going to go to war with Russia over this directly. Or your other option is we leave it like Syria, right? It's going to be an absolute, you know, pit of fire for the next decade. It already has been as far as the East goes, but the entire country will be ripped up because you know our policy. We say if we can't win, we'll just destroy it. And I think that may be the most likely outcome with the way that um, certain members, you know, high members of the Ukrainian government are disagreeing on whether to negotiate and then negotiations being blocked by Western powers. I think that what you're looking at is not quite in the same way, but say something like Venezuela, where it's like, fine, you don't want to cooperate. You don't want things to go our way. We'll just tear the place apart. And I think that's the same can be said for Syria, where we're just, fine, you don't like it. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to take Assad out. You won't resign. You won't write a new constitution. Fine. We'll leave it on fire for the next 10 years and we won't help you rebuild. And Ukraine, as it was, was already bombed out essentially. So they're going to have it real tough for going along with this. But I think that's the thing is that's the lesson you learn going along with the U.S. is that if we can't have it, we'll destroy it. And the U.S., uh, I forget who the official was, but official recently was asked, how long will we continue funding Ukraine? And he said, as long as it takes, which means forever. There's no end to this. And do you think the American public, which does not show a lot of interest in this stuff, will care about an unending war in Ukraine. You know, they seem to be over it already, don't they? Because I don't see any of the Ukraine flags or anything like that. I think that they didn't care about the war in Syria going on for all this time. They didn't care about what our involvement was in that. They didn't care about, you know, what started this conflict in Ukraine, what the coup in 2014. They didn't care about that. There's fads that go through. I think I think the thing that distracted the American people from Ukraine was literally the Johnny Depp trial. So I don't think that there's much attention span for it. And we have shown that we are very easily, you know, we can very easily acclimate to just a war raging on in the background as long as, um, you know, you don't have to see this in front. The only question I have now is can the Biden administration or whoever do something like the JCPOA or reopen uh, diplomatic ties with Venezuela 
to bring more oil to market because in a couple of months here, you're going to have a lot of cold Europeans who are going to have a lot of complaints if the war in Ukraine is still continuing. Um, so I think the thing is, is that it could continue very long. It could go on as long as possible, as long as people here don't notice. But the question is, our allies are going to notice and what are they going to do about it? And I think that that's going to be a problem because like I said, NATO may seem strong now, but man, give this six months to a year and see what happens when the Germans are paying, you know, another 800% increase on their fuel, right? I when people can't drive Ireland's rationing out gas as it is now, keep doing that for a while. And I think what you'll see is a problem with uh, the EU. You'll see a problem with NATO, um, you'll see people dropping, wanting to drop out of this international system that we set up after World War II. And I think that we're doing that to ourselves, and we're not acting fast enough to open up other portals to get oil, such as Iran or Venezuela. James Carey, great appearance, Raj Time. Tell people where they can find your podcast and your writing. All right. Uh, you can find all my work now at um, leftisdead.com. That is just leftisdead.com. And my podcast is there and any writings I have going and videos and stuff like that. So we'd be happy to have everyone check into it. Thank you. James, thanks so much. Great conversation. Enjoyed talking to you. And great conversation with Ted Rall in the first hour, com. We're out of time. So many great calls today. Melly, Owl Keller, Tarif. We'll be back tomorrow in our last show before Juneteenth for those people who care about that. Anyway, have a nice night. We'll see you tomorrow on The Backstory.